All right, let me uh, pray as we uh, dig into this parable. Lord, we, um, we look to you and uh, we ask for your revelation. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts, touch us, change us, renew us. May we be drawn to you, Lord, to walk ever more closely and to live out of this new identity and calling. For your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, a slightly challenging passage uh, with one or two confusing um, scriptures in it and uh, one that many commentators are a little bit confused with as well, so don't feel too bad about my own confusion. Um, I think ultimately we've got, a, we've got a passage here that speaks about integrity and uh, faithfulness. And so, I kind of entitled it this, Your Integrity reveals your faithfulness. God is interested in our integrity, our genuineness, our consistency. Integrity, like the word integer, one. We are one. We're not one thing in this place and another here. There's no, there's consistency, there's no hypocrisy. These are important traits in the kingdom. One thing that can help us in biblical interpretation and understanding is context. This is written by Luke, I believe was a physician, and um, not one of the original 12, but one who traveled with Paul at times. And he was, when you, you start his gospel, because he wrote the gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And he set out to write an orderly account. He was an educated, learned person. And so he has purpose and intent. There were not chapters and verses in his original document. There's a sense of continuity and purpose, which is why we've been looking from about Luke 9, 10, where he kind of, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, and there's a journey, and there's teaching and discipleship in this phase as he's heading towards suffering and crucifixion. So this passage follows on from one of the most famous passages, which we didn't look at last week, um, because we looked at it, remember, earlier in the year. It's a passage we've got depicted on the wall here. It's the story of the prodigal. What does prodigal mean? Does anyone know? Wayward or wasteful? Wasteful, that's important. <clears throat> it's also followed by, and more of this next week, the story of Lazarus the beggar and the rich man. In fact, it's one of the few, perhaps only instances where we have a description, an indication of what life is like after death for the believer. You don't see it anywhere else. And that follows this story. And I want to suggest there's some connection and significance of both of those stories. So here in, in our story, we have a, a rich man who's the owner. <clears throat> so typically there would have been landowners in that day and age. And they would have had tenants of their land. They didn't farm the land themselves. They rented it out to tenants. And they would have appointed uh, a manager to oversee that process. And the, these are the people we've got involved in the story here. So his estate manager had actually been accused. We're not sure by whom. But somebody had told the business, business owner that your manager is fit, he's on the fiddle. He's taking from you. And he was accused of wasting the owner's resources, like the prodigal, who wasted his father's resources. 
Now, the owner had perhaps every right to throw him into prison. He's a criminal. He's a crook. But he doesn't do that. He actually shows mercy. He says, you can't work for me anymore, but I need need to see the books. I need an account of what you've done. So he gives him some time. And that was an indication of his mercy. In the same way, I believe, we see the mercy of the father of the prodigal. Huge story of abundant mercy. Remember, I talked last week about the Pharisees just didn't believe there was a God out there who went looking for sinners to show mercy. They think he went out there to punish and destroy them from the face of the earth. But no. Again, we've got a glimpse of the mercy of God. So he's not sacked immediately, but he knows the writing is on the wall. He's going to be out of a job. And the last thing he wants to do is resort to manual labor. Now, not just because, you know, he'd not been digging for a while, he didn't have the muscles. Great shame in the culture of the day to have to step down from that level in society to now being a manual laborer. And worse still, to be out on the streets begging, incapable of providing for yourself. Remember the shame of the son. There he is, feeding pigs. In fact, eating their food. So here we've got the glimpses of the same dynamics taking place. What is he to do? Just as the son figured out, I need to do something, comes to his senses and tries to work his way back into his father's good books. Well, the estate manager here figures out a plan to save himself. You ever try to save yourself with God? Are you still trying? If we're still trying to be good enough, we're still in that, I've got to demonstrate that I'm worth saving. And you're not. Your sin, your rebellion, your self-centeredness puts you under his judgment and that's what you're worthy of. You're out. But remember, we have a God of mercy. However, many sadly try to save themselves to figure out what what, what, what must I do to be saved. In other words, what's within me? Now, this guy's pretty, he's a pretty clever, astute person. That's what a shrewd person is. And he's in the job because of his qualities and his abilities. And so what he does, he invites those tenants and, um, you know, they've rented land and they've made a the part of the contract is that I'm going to give you a proportion of my crops. It's not immediate. Obviously, it's when the crops come in. And that's why they owe what they owe. And so he reduces what they owe to the master in order to get in their good books. He's trying to work it out. He's trying to create a safe future of himself. It's not really ethical. But it's actually not illegal. He's the manager. He has every right to set the rates. Now, he's supposed to be taking care and thought of his owners, his manager's um, needs and uh, what's important to him. However, he's acting now in his own self-interest. But he's doing it based upon his experience of mercy. Remember that strange concept. In the Judaism of the day, there's not really a God of mercy, even though we cry out to him as such. And interestingly enough, this owner, this actually gracious owner, commends him. You see that? He commends him for losing him money. 
tell you that was a bit strange. Are we, are we commending unethical behavior? Do the ends justify the means? But he commends him for thinking about his future to realize there's consequence for the actions I'm taken and have taken. And sometimes we don't live like that. Sometimes kind of head in the sand, just carrying on, carrying on, without realizing what I do today, how I choose to live today, will bear fruit tomorrow. As you reap, sorry, as you sow, so shall you reap. The decisions I make today have consequence down the line. Many people don't live like that. We live just in the moment. So he's commended, and his hope is that if he's good to these tenants, perhaps one of them will take him in. Maybe even give him a job. Maybe put a roof over his head. Provide, provide him with a dwelling, a place to live. Remember the prodigal again. His way of working his way back was, well, even my father's servants do better than I'm doing. Let me, let me just go back and offer to be a slave to my father and at least I'll get board and lodging. Similar kind of story that we've got in this episode here. And then Jesus makes this comment that really is a bit troubling. The people of this world, so by that he's referencing unbelievers, people who are living for this world only, for their own ends. He says the people of this world, not the people of faith, apply themselves more than the people of the light. People of the light, that's you and I, remember, we've just celebrated that, I'm light of the world. We are people of light, but the people of the world apply themselves more than people of the light. I tell you, and then it gets really strange, use worldly wealth. Now, the NIV has slightly made that softer. Literally, it means unrighteous mammon unrighteous mammon or money. Use that to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Is Jesus commending us to use the filthy lucre <laughs> to get ourselves in good books so that we will have eternal life? Does that fit? But he said it, so what does he mean by it? first thing I would say is, do you take thought of your eternal destiny? Are you living today just for today? Or are you living with your future which has already begun in mind? Do you live with a sense of what is important to me and what I invest myself in is, is what Jesus described as eternal life. Knowing the Father and Him who He sent, which is knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Is that the focus of your life? Do you spend yourselves in growing in your relationship with the Father, experienced, and serving the Lord Jesus Christ as your Master? Because that is the call, and that is what shapes your eternal destiny. And he says, the people of this world do a far better job than the people of light. We have a problem, Houston. And I say it's a lack of discipleship. It's a lack of attention to my growth as a follower, a learner of Christ. And Jesus is touching upon this because of the state of Israel. Now, we do see in this story, I'm going to come back to this funny sentence. We do see in this story the importance of friendship. Talk a lot about friendship. There's a good side to friendship. 
we shouldn't be buying it, but there is a good side of friendship and hospitality are those two things again, fundamental expressions of what life is and what we long for. We want to be connected with people and we want to experience hospitality through shared experiences of home and food, etc. And you see that as a common theme throughout Luke's writings. But again, there's this comparison here between the friends of the shrewd manager and the friends of the prodigal. Because what happened to the friends of the prodigal once the money went out, was gone? They were off. These weren't true friendships. These were friendships of convenience. Much of our culture, sadly, has friendships of convenience. We have marriages of convenience. We have friends of convenience. And if things aren't going well, too much of a drain on me, don't like that about you, we're up and off. It's not meant to be like that. Now we have this reference to eternal dwellings. Somehow a link between making friends through unrighteous mammon and eternal dwellings. So remember what comes after this, quite interestingly, is the story about the person in eternity. Again, there's consequence of a rich man who lived for this world only without reference to God or the call upon him and he was given an eternal dwelling. Where was it? It was in Hades. It was miserable. More of that next week. Come back for more misery next week. No, that was a joke. Sorry. Shouldn't trifle with the word. But he was in a place of torment as a consequence of how he lived his life and what he sowed himself into. And I want to suggest that in this verse, Jesus is using irony. You've got to realize the Scriptures are not just, you know, this fundamentalist idea, you just take it word from word, literal, literal. You've got to realize there are several types of writings in the Scriptures. And part of our interpreting as well is understanding context, is understanding intent and um, meaning and genre and style to best understand. Jesus often used humor. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I know you're not laughing, but they would have been busting a gut over that one. And to, to, to speak with irony is to say one thing but mean another. Yes, you invest yourselves in friendships on the basis of money and look where it will get you. There will be an eternal consequence. In Proverbs it says, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their du duplicity. Proverbs 11 and verse 3. <clears throat> we are called to live out the reality of what we believe, whatever it costs us. We are to have integrity, and we demonstrate that through our faithfulness, especially in the little things in the small things of life, in the hidden things. What are we like when we're on our own versus when we're in, in view of others? Are we equally convicted about sin in secret as sin in public? Do we realize we live our lives in the, in, in the view of God who cares for us and who loves us but wants us to live loving Him? And there's a principle in the kingdom. Faithfulness in the little things leads to 
responsibility and opportunity in greater. Like the parable of the, the ten minas, where the faithful one who, who invested and used what he was given was given control over ten cities. You see, part of our destiny and part of our calling is tremendous responsibility. But if we can't handle money well, worldly goods, what do you th- why do you think God would entrust spiritual goods, which are worth far more? The lives of people, relationships, even the mission of God. These are true riches because of what Christ has revealed. This is the kingdom. This is the riches that back in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells about the, the, the wealthy man who sold everything he had in order to have this one thing, the pearl of great price. To buy the field, to have the prize of the kingdom. Nothing compares. Now what God does give us, and he does entrust to us, resources, financial resources. Some of you have more than others. Some of you wish you had more than you have. Sometimes people wish they had less than they have. There's a burden that comes with it at times. But it's not yours to squander, like this manager did, and like the prodigal did. And so Jesus brings it back to the place of money in our lives as an indicator of our commitment to kingdom, how we use the resources God has entrusted, and more specifically, the love for money. Because it will become a love, as we'll see in a moment. Our faithfulness in the little things is expressed through our willingness to serve, to do the things that people don't often see, There's a lot of people serve in this building. I see it because I'm here most days. Most of you don't. They faithfully give so much time and energy. God sees it. God delights in it. And God will bring increase because of it. But that principle is true for all of us. We've been given not only financial resources, we've been given talents and gifts to be used. And part of our faithfulness, part of our integrity is A, our, remember, putting God the Father and the knowledge of Him and His Son as primary and then bringing everything into submission to that and using it for Him and for His glory. That is the key to life that Jesus is touching on. But money is the great indicator, I think, very often for many of us. Money can quickly become our master, the one we obey rather than God. Didn't bring it with me. So I put this quote from John Wesley, which I kind of liked. On your front, your service bulletin. Money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. It was said of John Wesley, who was obviously a great reformer, you know, what was left at the end of his life. He really didn't possess much at all. He kind of had a Bible. He had a hymn book. Oh, and the Methodist Church. Not bad, huh? So who controls you? Who is your master? And um, we, don't, we don't like the thought of being mastered by anyone, do we? If we're honest. But we are. And we're called to actually yield to and submit to the Lord as the master. That's what it means for him to be Lord. So what can we learn from this as I finish? Well, like I said, I think one of the best indicators of our spirituality and our growth in Christ is our checkbook. Well, we don't really have checkbooks. I know some of you probably do. I don't have a checkbook. (laughs) Um, 
but our bank balance and our money and what we spend it on. Because God's far more interested in what we keep than what we give. You know that, don't you? Because the second principle is, you're the owner of nothing, but you're the steward of everything God has given. You're the steward. You're looking after it on his behalf. And he'll ask for the books and a reckoning. All of it belongs to him, and we are supposed to too. Now the tithe gets sometimes a bit of bad press. I was really touched um, recently. Somebody who, because of summer, hadn't been around in worship, came in during the week, and there was only me here, to bring their tithe. They said, this is so important. I know I've not been around, but this is a matter of obedience, and it's a discipline in my life. And we talked about how that had grown and developed. And uh, there, was, there was somebody who had put, you know, God in the right place and was choosing to express that in a particular way. Now, the tithe, tithe means 10%, um, and it was introduced under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, although it was there before the covenant, because we have Abraham tithing before the law came. So the principle has always been true. But it was essentially a fund, a 10% to fund the, the Levitical priestly ministry. In other words, to keep worship and the ministry going. And that was because of the tribes that came into the promised land, their inheritance was a portion of the land in order to make a living and provide for themselves and for God. However, the tribe, the Levitical tribe, didn't get a portion of land. In fact, it said their inheritance was the Lord himself. And we are a kingdom of priests whose inheritance is the Lord himself. You can get excited at that. I kind of love that. But because they had no means of support, it was the responsibility of all the other tribes and families to provide and support for them. And that's where the tithe came in. And if, you didn't, if the nation didn't tithe, there'd be no centrality of God because there'd be no ultimately, initially tabernacle and then temple worship and God would fritter away like he has done in our culture. And the problem is because the people of God have not given both of their talents and their treasures to the purpose of God. And this is why it's an indicator of our faith and our true worship because we give from the first fruits. We give of the best. Actually, there were three tithes. And there's disagreement over, does that mean it was like 30%, which is kind of equivalent to a tax rate, or was it just 10% that was given in different directions? It doesn't really matter too much. But they tithed to support the worship ministry. They tithed for feast days. I love that, don't you? They gave money so that they could party. That's, that's important. Food's always been important. And they tithed for the poor. There was a recognition there would you would always have the poor among you. And there is a need to take care of and be thoughtful of those who cannot, because of their circumstance, provide. And those are the ones God has a special heart for. And that's why he's delighted when we give towards that, as many do here. There's no specific command for Christians to tithe in the New Testament. But it's a good principle. But it's not a limit. It helps us overcome the danger of money and greed in our lives, which will keep us from the kingdom. We don't talk about that so much, but it's as grievous as adultery 
and sexual immorality, greed. And so giving, a spirit of giving is a way of overcoming that in our lives. And giving releases blessing. That principle has never gone away. Give and it shall be given unto you, Jesus said. And that's part of the promise of Malachi, bring the whole tithe in the storehouse. I see will I not open up the windows of heaven and pour out such blessing that you will not have room for it. But with the blessing also God promises to push back the devourer. It's not just blessing for you, but it's actually protection from the one who would devour you. Which is why we need that. Because we will be consumed by it. I think we also see in the New Testament around money that we would, should have greater openness and accountability about what we have and how we use it. We don't like that because we're very private and we don't talk about that. Well, you talk about the pastor. And sometimes, because I've been at this job for a while and everyone talks about how much I get paid and I'll say, well, let's throw everything in the ring, shall we, and have a good open discussion. How are we all doing? But one of the significant parts of the New Testament, the early church covenant community was they had, they, there was nothing that they considered their own. They held everything in common and they sold what they had to give to the apostles. And when there was a lack of accountability or deceit or lack of integrity, Ananias and Sapphira over money, God smote them. He kind of killed them. He took them out over money and deception. It's that important and it's that capable of devouring not just those individuals but the whole community because we're all affected by each other because we're one, brothers and sisters. No, I won't go there. And then finally, as I've said before, you can't take it with you but you can send it on ahead. Invest in the kingdom where moth and rust will not destroy And you do that by giving, by serving the needs of the poor and the broken and the destitute. So that's my understanding of the shrewd manager. Hope that's helpful, encouraging, challenging. Any questions? He should have known that. He should have been able to say, look, you owe this much, make it this much. But maybe in asking, he's reminding the the person of the debt and therefore the impact because when you live with that, Does anyone feel the pressure of a mortgage payment coming up or a debt payment? And, you know, when we connect with that, we feel the pain of it and perhaps then the impact of it being less and somebody saying, don't worry about it, I've got it covered for you this month. That kind of feels nice, doesn't it? But maybe you're right. Maybe he was losing touch because of other practices going on. Well, there was an offering of the first fruits. Absolutely. There is... There is giving out of what has been given to us. There's a recognition that all we have is of God's and we want to be thankful for him, for the harvest and that which he's provided and instinctively we should want to give back. Absolutely, it's there. Not explicitly as the tithe, but it's the sense of the offering. But it wasn't just the amount that was given because one was received and one wasn't. It's the attitude of the heart because God loves a cheerful giver. So if we write our checks grudgingly and suppose we've got to do it again, you may as well not give. You don't let the treasurer hear that I said that. Remove that from the tape. Oh, no, it's up here, isn't it? Rosie's not here today. And I think that, that's my prayer for us. You know, do we, we, are we generous? Do we give? Do we initiate by giving? And do we give over and above that which we can even afford, perhaps?
because of we've been so generously given to. It will always come back to my understanding of the mercy of God. I'm living with this realization that I deserve this, but he was given this. So I, I can never outgive him. Because everything I have is a consequence of his goodness towards me. And this is what the Holy Spirit wants to bring us an awareness of so that we are free to actually be outrageously extravagant with time, talent, and treasure. Any other questions? I kind of want to throw questions because, hey, we've got a bit of time. It's not a communion service. But B, it's, a, it's a kind of a complicated and challenging little episode. And we all love talking about money, don't we? No, we don't, don't we? You know, it's the thing Jesus talked about probably almost the most is money. It's there, it's there throughout his, his teaching because he knows the danger of it. He knows the devourer is there that if we don't live with good openness and accountability and freedom from it. And what helps us with that is living in community, living connected to others, sharing, having less kept back for myself. That will protect us. But we've got to trust in a provider who says, daily, give us this day my daily bread. That's what Israel were taught through the wilderness wanderings. They, had, they couldn't earn. They couldn't plant crops. They were on the move. And every day, God provided. And the degree to which you test God in this is the degree you'll experience more of his abundance and blessing. When we're out of our comfort zone, this is a, I'm a work in progress with this, believe you me. This does not come easy. Because when I set out professionally, my job, it was to make as much money as I could. And I left family in the north and, and moved to England as a 19-year-old because I could earn twice as much there as I could back home. That shaped my life. Sorry? Oh, London. Yorkshire's. The true England is in Yorkshire. But I left. God's country and went south. Um, I wasn't a Christian at the time. I became a Christian in my mid-twenties, professional career moving on. And God challenged me as an early, I remember being outside a, a worship gathering for some reason and there was a little book stall. I picked up a book and it was about giving. And I was just convicted. God spoke to me through that because it was an idol. You see, when we, when we love money more than God, we've actually created an idol which gets us in a lot of trouble. There's no fruit from that that's going to be good. And, and he challenged me with that. And, and he blessed me with a... Because I, I began to tithe and more, and then he blessed me with a career where I had more and more. And then he challenged me by saying, I want you to leave all that and go off to seminary. And I went living, not real comfortably, but relatively to being in debt, depending upon others, not knowing where anything was coming from, raising three children, with uh, pennies. But learning things through that experience. And God has done that on several occasions in my life. He's always been faithful. Is there a spirit of Frank Doll out there anywhere or is it all over here? <laughs> yeah, that... Because um, Paul talks about that in Philippians as well, don't the secret of contentment. I've learned to be content, whether in need or in plenty, because of God and his provision and, and his promises. That's our security. All right, let's do this. Let's take five minutes or so and let's talk with somebody else about, um, about this question.
Is there a takeaway from you? Is there a challenge in your life when it comes to um, being generous as far as money? Remember, can't love, can't love God and money. You, they don't coexist. And Or maybe have you got a testimony for how you've learned to grow and avoid the devour in your life through your own, how God has led you to be more generous. So you may have a testimony, you may have a, a challenge, or you may have 